This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Australian Museum. For those of you I haven't met before, I'm Kim McKay. I'm the director and CEO of this wonderful institution, and it's uh, great for you to join us. I'd like to start this afternoon by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that we meet on today, the Gadigal people, and pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging, and note that we have many of those fantastic emerging leaders working here at the museum. I also want to acknowledge that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land, and of course we are the custodian here of one of the most significant Indigenous collections in the nation. Uh, I think it's second largest to the South Australian Museum's collection. And we've recently appointed, uh, the first, for the first time, a First Nations director, and that's a wonderful woman called Laura McBride. Laura is, isn't with us today. She's actually got a really bad cold, uh, which comes out of the hard work she's been doing to curate the Unsettled exhibition alongside uh, our First Nations curator, Mareko Smith, who you're going to hear from today. Of course, Unsettled is a groundbreaking exhibition for the Australian Museum, one that we're just so incredibly proud of at every level. Um, the tagline, I actually stole, I'm a great plagiarist, by the way. Um, I've stolen it from the director of the West Australian Museum, Alex Cole, Alec Coles, who, when they redid the West Australian Museum, rebuilt it completely, a $450 million project. They've embedded First Nations culture right across the museum. And Alex said, why would we speak for them, meaning the First Nations people of Western Australia, when they can speak for themselves? And we've really taken that on board with Unsettled. You'll see, when you come back to see this exhibition that opens this Saturday, um, in our new touring hall uh, downstairs, it's, it really is um, a truth-telling exhibition, one that's never been presented like it in Australia. I'm very proud of our, our team and all the work they've done on this. And uh, I only wish you could see it today, but next time you come for another one of these great talks in uh, this lunchtime lecture series, you'll be able to certainly go and visit it but, and come back often. So today is really important because it does kick off the lunchtime lecture series this year. For those of you who might remember, of course, we were closed for this 15-month period um, during COVID because we were rebuilding the museum and transforming the museum. People said I had incredible foresight to close the museum at that time, and COVID happened. So we didn't really miss out too much uh, as we're all locked at home during that period. But the year before and the year before that, we did have a lunchtime lecture series, really pulling on some of the people featured in our uh, 200 Treasures Gallery in the Westpac Long Gallery. A number of the people featured up on level one, 100 Australians who've helped shape the nation. It's a different list to lists that you normally see. This is a list of people that we chose. Uh, so, you know, there are more women on the list than ever before. And there are certainly more First Nations people on the list than you would normally see in a list of 100 Australians who've done outstanding things. And so it's from this list that uh, our programming team today has drawn from to create this wonderful 
um, lunchtime lecture series. Now, the first person who we're going to hear from today is Dr. Charles Marshall in conversation with Dr. Mareko Smith. Ecological Knowledge Systems and Marbo's Legacy. Now, Charles was going to be with us in person today, but she developed an ear infection. I don't think she minds me saying that. So she wasn't allowed to fly here. So she's going to join us via Zoom, but we have Dr. Mareko Smith absolutely in the flesh and in person today, Mareko. <laughs> Um, so they're going to talk about today the deep cultural knowledge systems that not only overturn the legal fiction of terra nullis, but may help reverse the damaging effects of 200 years of Eurocentric land and sea management practice that occurred here and, and the difference that might make in the future. So it's going to be a great discussion. Now, I hope Charles is going to forgive me for my appalling pronunciation but she's a, a Gambara woman and a traditional owner from the Bagabaga Nagamba clan um, in northern New South Wales. She is a saltwater woman, marine ecologist and scientist dedicated to the integration of traditional land management techniques into scientific practice for the preservation of land and sea, which I really love because upstairs at the moment we're building a wonderful new education space for young people which marries Western science with First Nations knowledge and science. And it's going to be the first of its kind in Australia when it's open next Easter. So uh, that's something very much to look forward to. So uh, Chels holds a doctorate from the ANU. I think the graduation ceremony is very soon, isn't it? August, I August, believe. OK. Yeah. Pretty exciting. From ANU, as I said, uh, on traditional knowledge systems and climate change in the Pacific... She also holds a Master's in Marine Science from the National Marine Science Centre at the University of New England. And for over 25 years, she worked as a ranger for New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service. And if that isn't enough, uh, she's also a visual artist who uses her work to bridge the worlds of science, culture and art. And Mareko, who is one of our fantastic team members here at the Australian Museum, Dr. Mareko Smith is a Yuan woman with Japanese heritage. She is the museum's First Nations curator. And of course, this Friday night, when we'll be joined, with, apart from with Laura McBride, but with about 100 uh, First Nations people who've contributed to the Unsettled exhibition as we declare it open. And of course, as I said, this is truth-telling at its finest. I think people will find it quite confronting, but boy, do we need to do it in Australia right now. So with that, I'm going to hand over to Mareka. I'll come back at the end to thank our speakers and also to tell you about some of the other great talks that we're going to have in this lunchtime lecture series. But please welcome again Mareko Smith and Charles Marshall. Thank you. You can hear me okay? Yeah. Thank you so much, Kim, for that very nice introduction. Um, I too would like to um, acknowledge the traditional owners of the land upon which the museum stands today, the Gadigal people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. So further to Kim's introduction, like Chels, I have done a PhD involving Indigenous knowledge systems. My study was on the Aboriginal tide bark canoe making process and the Aboriginal community-led cultural resurgence of the practice across the southeast. 
This practice promotes localised connections to country, both land and water country. And before my life as a museum curator and researcher, I was a lawyer. I remember learning at law school about the Marbo and Queensland Number no. 2 High Court of Australia decision that was handed down on the 3rd of June 1992 after many years going through the Australian legal system. And the highest court in the land recognised that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples had prior occupation and continuing connection to the land. And this debunked the terra nullius legal doctrine and established the concept of native title in Australian law. So Mabo led to the Keating federal government legislating the Native Title Act in 1993, which created a framework that aimed to recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander rights and interests in certain land because of their traditional laws and customs. I also recall watching the castle a lot and being inspired by that famous quote of it's Mabo, it's justice, it's law, it's the vibe. So you can't help but get excited about the significance of this case. So it is great to be here today with Chelsea Marshall, unfortunately not here in person, but no less here in spirit, to honour Mer Island man, the great Eddie Kawiki Mabo, who sadly passed away before the decision was handed down. And we're here to discuss his legacy into 2021. He proved his connection to country through traditional ecological knowledge of his people. So with that very brief setting of the context for today's discussion, I would first like to ask Chels to help unpack some of these concepts and some of the acronyms that um, Chels uses in her work and what we'll be discussing today. So Chels, if I could just throw it over to you, let's start off with what is traditional ecological knowledge? Oh, thanks, Mariko, and um, hello to everyone. I'm, I apologise that I can't be there in person. I love coming to the museum. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry, but uh, yeah, doctor's orders today. Um, so um, what is uh, traditional ecological knowledge? So the acronym for it is TEK, and I'm sure that a lot of people have heard it um, being thrown around a lot. Um, you know, it's been around and for a very, very long time. Um, and it's only just sort of come into um, its own, I suppose, in the last sort of 20, 25 years. Um, it's the term uh, used over the last few decades to describe um, Indigenous knowledge bases of environmental ecosystems and ecological processes. And obviously those uh, environmental systems and, and processes are then attached um, into or intertwined into cultural realms. So it's, it's a scientific explanation of the knowledge um, that's associated with that, that long-term survival, abiotic and biotic um, ecosystems, uh, species understanding and how to manage these resources. Um, and these knowledges are, as I said, they're inherently embedded in uh, cultural customary law and, and social order. So, um, you know, it's also um, termed other names. Um, so, you know, there's also a term for Indigenous knowledge. Uh, it's the same sort of thing. Uh, it's referred to as native science. Um, it's also referred to, you know, local uh, Indigenous uh, knowledge. Um, it's also uh, referred to just Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous knowledge systems. Um, so, 
it's 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 basically yeah as a whole it's it refers to that evolving knowledge acquired by indigenous and local peoples over hundreds or thousands of years through that direct contact with the environment and that contact has then been uh, fully embedded in, in into culture and cultural systems um, so these Knowledge, this knowledge, um, you know, a, a lot of them relate uh, spatially and temporally to, um, you know, location. So it's a locational thing. So not all knowledge systems are the same, but um, many uh, are, are similar in, in their application and in, in that knowledge system as well. So it's, it's you know, that, that intimacy of interaction with the environment um, and that, knowing intimately the the resource or a species at a species level or as a as a bioregional level um, and then interacted with that is the the levels of ecological experience and knowledge and knowledge that that comes with that and that could be you know across it could differ across individuals or whole communities whole language um, uh, groups as I mentioned. Oh, that's great. I think that's a really great summary. It's a very complex area. I mean, in my own studies, um, you know, defining what Indigenous knowledge is, like I use the terminology Indigenous ways of knowing, just trying to get it beyond that sort of epistemological way of looking at what, what is knowledge and then using the plurality of in, in knowledges. And so that's something that comes through, like what was Chelsea was talking about in regards to the plurality of knowledge systems and also with Marbo looking at the plurality of the legal systems as well. So that's something, um, Chels, you, you and I, we've had a bit of a pre-chat before today and, um, you know, talking about uh, some of these concepts to share with the, with the audience today, um, talking about the, the recognition of the different legal systems. And as I was saying, like, Marika, it's, it's, it's a different way of thinking. It's, an, it's, another, um, it's another way of seeing the world, a different worldview. Um, you know, and it may not be called science in Indigenous languages, but it, that Indigenous knowledge refers to the scientific skills that Aboriginal people value and have used since the beginning of time to discover the way things exist and move in the natural environment. It, it essentially embodies that process of ecocentric perspectives and knowledge systems of environmental indicators and those familiarities with, you know, the processes within, you know, the biosphere and within, you know, biological uh, diversity and biomes. Um, and, you know, just adding on to that, you know, the important thing to understand about, um, you know, Indigenous ecological knowledge or traditional ecological knowledge is that it's about practice rather than just content. So it's about the activity of cultural transmission um, as much as the, you know, the knowledge that is taught. It's it's that practice of intergenerational knowledge transfer of, you know, people, young, especially young people learning on country from elders. It's, it's, um, it's really important in that context because that enables that uh, knowledge system to live and breathe and, and to continue on. And, yeah, I, I know that was a really important thing for the people of Mer, like, um, it was It was an important component. Thanks for that. Yes, yeah, because it's just seeing about... Um how Marbo and native title, how it sits within sort of Australian legal, so we're looking at Australian legal system 
Australian knowledge system, which is, you know, very Eurocentric. So using that, to, I really like what you said about ecocentric. That is the way we need to be thinking. So moving away from that Eurocentric way of knowing and also with law um, to more of that sort of ecocentric. Because um, yeah, when I was studying the Marbo case, it was within the subject of real property law. And so it's a very sort of limiting way of looking at it where, as you described so eloquently about how indigenous knowledge systems, it is all about the interrelationships with culture, with community, with practice. It's not just about the content, the product, it's the process. And then having it defined within that limita limitations, the category of, for example, real property law, um, it really just... I don't feel it, it just gives it, you know, we, we get that appreciation of what, what it involves because, yes, the legacy of Marbo and um, what it means today. And so what do you think about what native title allows us to do? Could you give us a little bit of an insight into how native title, um, through the legislation, but also, I guess, through the case law um, with Marbo, um, how did that outline rights and interests for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples? Yeah, look, one of the key components of um, native title in Australia was um, this process of acknowledging um, that, you know, Aboriginal people are the original owners of, 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 of country and that Aboriginal people's knowledge systems are attached to that country. And, uh, you know, the, these knowledge systems, you know, they provide uh, equity in the environment. Um, they come with a, a mindset, so a, a belief in it, which is the law and customs of that area. And then they come with the practice that's applied. And that was one thing in the, um, in, in the Marbo case was that you know, native title allows people to have uh, continuing cultural practice. Um, and I think that is really important in, in the framing of, you know, traditional ecological knowledge and the application of TEK in Australia is that, you know, traditional knowledge is, is a knowledge, belief, practice complex. Um, and, you know, that allows Aboriginal people to continue culture and, you know, to implement uh, their rights um, and their place in country. Um, and a lot of that rights and place comes with inherent responsibilities to country. And this is when I talk about these systems of practice and this whole system is that it's not just an isolated component, that there's a whole other complex um, components be behind it. So, you know, it, it, it allows integration of language into country. Um, it integrates meaning of place. Um, in there as well. It allows Aboriginal people to have access to our resources, you know, our, our foods, our medicines. And, and, and these are the things that, you know, are, are our makeup and they're the things that we need. You know, we don't need McDonald's on the corner. We, we don't need, you know, heaps of sugar from Woolworth shops. Um, you know, and Aboriginal people, a lot of um, our diet is still made up um, from these uh, resources and sustenance. And, um, you yeah, it's really important then for that to have transmission in, into younger generations and to allow older people to, to have access to these uh, foods and medicines. So, you know, that was the other components that, that came out of Native Title. And all this stuff then relates back to these knowledge systems um, 
and being able to access them and to utilise and to practice is the, is the main things. Yeah, because I've heard someone say to me that yeah, nature is like, um, you know, it, the bush is like nature's supermarket. And so there's a lot of opportunities there in regards to the Australian food industry with bush foods, the popularity. Um, I would like to ask you about, you know, the social socioeconomic outcomes for mob coming out of native title. Yeah, look, um, one of the interesting things um, in Australia uh, are these these um, constructs called Indigenous protected areas. Um, so a lot of um, lands that uh, were claimed under Native Title were then placed, you know, freely um, into Australia's national reserve system. So we now have, you know, I think it's something like, you know, 84, correct me if I'm wrong, I could have this wrong, but it's something like 84% of Australia's uh, national reserve system is um, Indigenous protected areas, which are owned and managed by Aboriginal people. Um, and these, you know, it, it's, I think it's really significant that, you know, for a lot of native title lands that were um, given back or reclaimed, that, you know, a lot of Aboriginal communities then chose to put these into protected areas. Um, and, and that's conserving, you know, these, these what we call biobanks for future generations and for everyone, you know, throughout the world, especially now when you start to see where we have pandemics, we've got climate change issues, you know, we, we need to have these biobanks and we need to have the diversity within these biobanks functioning. So... From that, you know, a lot of then came out of that was things like ecotourism, um, was uh, language uh, re renewal, um, also improvement in health, um, you know, lowering in employment, uh, I mean, you know, lowering unemployment rates, um, more skilled Aboriginal people. Um, so the benefits, you know, I can go on and on about the benefits Um but I'd I love you to talk more and more about the benefits. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, and the benefits, yeah, they're not only for Aboriginal people, yeah, they're, they're benefits for the whole of Australia and the whole of the world, really, because, yeah, when you've got these parcels of land that yeah, are, are inserted into a, a protected area network, um, you know, it's only enhancing, you know, the air we breathe, the diversity of species in Australia, um, you know, all the special, um, you know, organisms, plants and animals that we have in, in, in this place. And, you know, that could only be of benefit for everyone. And at the same time, you know, allowing um, Aboriginal people to be skilled and to work on country and to, you know, have that connection with make what makes us who we are, you know, that, that benefits um, you know, you know, mental health. It, it benefits, you know, health as well. Um, you know, assists in disease. There's more access to, to medicines, traditional medicines, um, to traditional foods. Um, you know, it's 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 overall. And as that's happening, you know, you, you you're lowering um, you know all the expenses that need to be paid on you know, um, you know Western uh, pharmaceuticals, etc. Because that's the exciting thing about it. Like it's really native title 
I think there's a lot of opportunities that opens up for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, but also the benefits are far-reaching to the Australian public as well. I mean, it's interesting to think about at the time when Mabo was handed down, so around, you know, 1992, and then with the uh, enactment of the native title legislation, there was a lot of scaremongering going along, uh, you know, getting around around that time, didn't, wasn't there, Chills? Like, people were really yeah. scared of, like, oh, the, the Aborigines are going to take my backyard, going to lose all our land... And and um, I, I don't know if we've got that graphic about um, the land ownership um, across Australia. It was an interesting... Um, so I can do it with my... No, we don't have that. But the, if you look at The Guardian today, I think Chelsea sent me a message earlier this morning about um, The Guardian had um, a article regarding um, from 1788 to, I think, 2018, um, you know, the land um, ownership of... Of Aboriginal people owning the land, and that was like decreasing over time. Did you want to talk a, a little bit about that? Yeah, look, it, it, and it shows. It was really interesting. I encourage you all to have a read of it. Uh, it was in the Guardian uh, today, I think, and it just shows. Um, and you can see after 1993 uh, where Aboriginal land ownership has increased. And when you look at that map, I want you to remember that the majority of those parcels of land are under protected area mechanisms. So they're all, um, you know, the, the majority of them are Indigenous protected areas. And, and these areas are the areas where you've got now got um, Aboriginal ranger groups and, and they're, they're in, um, doing research on things like cultural burning, fire stick farming, um, they're contributing to um, threatened species recovery and endangered species recovery. Um, the majority of them also got you know, camping areas and, and are opened up for the public to enjoy um, your cultural ecotourism. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a shared space essentially. But, you know, the thing about the shared space is that it also allows Aboriginal people to have access to our traditional resources and to continue our traditional practices. And so just step back a little bit about, so what does native title encompass? So we've talked a lot about land. So that's a lot of the emphasis has been upon, you know, it's about land, country being land, but it's much more than that, isn't it, Chels? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things, and it's interesting that, you know, the Marbo case was actually, you know, on an island that was in salt water in the ocean. And, um, you know, the... The, the ocean space is still highly contested um, and, you know, there hasn't been many uh, native title determinations in that oceanic space. Um, you know, in New South Wales, um, our neighbours, uh, the Yagel people, were the first ones to have uh, native title in the marine and aquatic space uh, in New South Wales um, and they sit um, around the Clarence River and uh, Yamba. Uh, down to uh, uh, roughly about uh, Woolye and Red Rock on the north coast. Um, and that includes um, the ocean space and also um, the, uh, the, some of the river systems. Um, yeah, the other one that got some media attention was obviously Blue Mud Bay. Um, yep. And the interesting thing about that was, you know, people also had that fear and that whole, you know, complexity of, oh, yeah, we're going to get locked out, we're not going to be able to be in there. But, you know, the, the people from up there are negotiating uh, sustainable fish, fisheries. Um, this is, they're negotiating, you know, recreational use um, within those areas. So, 
you know, there's the, the, the fear factor I'm hoping at this stage is, has subsided within Australia um, because, you know, it's, it's, it is left a, a legacy for Australia and for all Australians um, and the, the benefits, you know, you can see that the benefits completely outweigh the negativity of it. 100%, that's right. Because you only have to look at, you know, not long after Marbo, you got, you know, 1996, I believe, with the WIC native title case, so WIC and um, Queensland, and then with Howard, John Howard's government coming into power around that time, and then the, his government with the 10-point plan regarding WIC. So you just see that, so, you know, that erosion or that attempt to really limit um, the scope of native title. So I really appreciate how... We're turning away from that narrative of seeing native title as something that is like a subtractive thing where it's taking things away from people where we need to look at the sort of the additive, the benefits of what it is going to bring and benefit for all Australians. And I know this is something that Kim mentioned earlier about Unsettled. Um, you know, this is some of these topics are coming up in the Unsettled exhibition. So I'll just do a bit of a shameless plug in regards to that about exploring terra nullius and... Yeah, so recognising um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's ongoing connections to land and that ongoing resistance efforts as well. So um, yeah, just, yeah. Not, not a lot of people know that, you know, prior to Mabo, Ab Aboriginal people were, um, I suppose, headlocked into this fight about, you know, ownership of country for a very long time. And, you know, I think um, on one of the pictures there is the Yurikala uh, Bark oh, yes. Paint. Yep. I'll see if and, I can find it for you, Chills. And, yeah, they're, they're beautiful in many ways where they, you know, brought together this traditional petition um, in, in a white man's, um, you know, legislative way. Um, and, you know, that, that was one, and there was even things prior to that about asserting, you know, uh, rights on country and ownership, um, of, of people's um, country uh, in Australia. And, you know, following on from that was then the, you know, Vincent Lingari and, and the walk-off from the station. Um, you know, so it's, the, Australia's got a long history of Aboriginal people fighting for the assertion of land ownership. And I suppose that was the, why Mabo is so significant because as you said, you know, it, it, um, you know, it, it went through a Western uh, law system um, and giving, um, you know, Aboriginal knowledge and Aboriginal, a, a different worldview or epistemology on, you know, ownership of, of land. It was, it, that's why it was so interesting and so significant for Australia. Um, and, you know, Mariko, I, um, I do a lot of work in, um, you know, in, in sustainability and, um, you know, considering that our well, humanity's ecological footprint has exceeded the Earth's capacity, um, you know, we're, I think we're at about 1.6 planets at the moment that we need mm. to provide our resources and sustainability. You know, our biodiversity index has fallen by more than 50% as you know, all our um, populations of other species besides us continue to decline. We've got greenhouse gas emissions that are driving climate change, which have almost doubled, while the impacts of climate change are being you know, debated and whatnot. We, we continue to be accustomed to biodiversity and species loss. Um, 
Yeah, our natural systems essential to our survival, the forests, the oceans, the rivers continue to be degraded and dwindled. You know, we've lost more than 48% of our tropical and subtropical forests of the world. Yeah, and all the mammals on the earth, yeah, 96% of them are livestock and humans. Well, only four are wild animals, 4% are wild animals, all the birds, 70% are chickens and other poultry. And, and for human consumption, we're and only 30% of wild animals, yeah. Our influence, influence on, the cli- on the climate has degre- decreased shallow water corals by 50% in 30 years, yeah. We've decimated global species populations by 60% in the last 40 years. We've cleared, you know, 20% of the Amazon rainforest in the last 30 years. Um, yeah, and the technology to live on another planet is still 60 to 100 years away or who knows. So... I sort of think of it like, you know, if, if there's another um, paradigm, if there's another tool in the toolbox that we can start learning about and we can utilise that's going to help us through these times, why not be Aboriginal ownership and why not be the implementation of Aboriginal traditional ecological knowledge in these natural systems? Well, that's it. Yeah, because I remember you telling me about we need lot like extra planets to survive at this rate, and that, that you, you saying that to me when I, when we had our pre um, talk chat, and it's like it just shocked me. It's like, I guess you know it's just, it's unsustainable the current practice and the current direction that we're going, and you know First Nations people have this understanding about how to live in harmony in this particular environment, and um, and the fact that we you know we try not to colonise it as well. I mean, I think colonisation is that yeah, is this that elephant in the room that we need to discuss in regards to the fact that despite Marbo, despite the promise of native title coming out of the Marbo case, the First Nations people are still being negatively impacted upon by colonisation, you know, impacts upon access to land and just working within this um, colonial system. And, you know, looking at my work in cultural resurgence, the fact that in order to prove native title, you need to prove that ongoing cultural connection to your cultural practices and to country and how can you do that when there are some communities who have been forbidden to continue practice uh, in the past and have been removed forcibly removed off country so just trying to think of where can we go from here so it's like what you were saying about um you know, we need to um, see the benefits of um, Indigenous land management for everyone. You know, we all need trees, we all need water, we all need clean soil. So we all acknowledge these as truths yet fail to address their destruction. So um, I would like to steer the conversation to one particular topic that I know a lot of people have been aware of and um, interested in, which is about fire management practices. So especially coming out of 2020, not being just a year of COVID-19, but also the devastating catastrophic bushfires we've had across the southeast. So um, can we talk a little bit about Western views about, you know, fire management and how that um, compares, contrasts to Indigenous fire management practices? Yeah, look, I can, I can base it on my own experience and, um, you know, some of the things that we're, we're doing in Gumbangi country. Um, you know, I obviously was a, um, a, a fire manager and then a, um, you know, operational manager in, uh, you know, what they call Section 44 fires, which is uh, where all agencies, the fire is so severe that all agencies um, need to 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 come together to um, fight this fire. And um, 
wherever you go, you know, people, you, you'll meet people and say, I'm a firefighter and uh, where are you off to? We're fighting fires. So I think that's the first thing is the, the use of this terminology where, you know, in Australia, fire's seen as an enemy. Um, you know, it's something that we're continually having to fight. It's like a war on on fire and the landscape, and we're we're at 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 war with it because we're continually fighting. We're always fighting fire here and fighting it over here. And you know, the application of traditional ecological knowledge and 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 fire stick farming and cultural burning, yeah, you know, it reduces the risks of these these wildfires. Um, and that's what the problem is. It's not just fire as as a as a as an entity. It's 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 wildfires. So because the, a lot of Australia's landscape has been left unmanaged, um, that you know we've got these ridiculous amounts of fuel build up, and and that's one of the key components with wildfire. And obviously, the use of fire in Australia for a very very long time has also altered um, you know the species that exist here. We have a continent that you know is dominated by eucalyptus species, and you know it's through that use of fire, um, that a lot of the vegetation that we have um, is either, you know, fire retardant or fire dependent. Um, you know, and when we talk about these sort of uh, fire risks and, and climate change, you know, th there's some intense cons uh, consequences that, you know, predicted in Australia that, you know, these more frequent uh, extreme weather events uh, with, with heat waves and storms and you get lightning strikes from storms and 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 cyclones um and high wind events that come after bushfires uh you know the continued decline in rainfall um in australia and and, and higher temperatures leading to decrease decreases in water supplies um yeah we really need to start thinking about uh diversifying and changing the way we 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 build buildings and infrastructure the design uh, the diversification of our water supplies, our the the improvement of our water use, um, rethinking the way we develop vulnerable um, areas, um, and yeah, and our farming practices on top of that as well. Um, but you know, this this whole thing around fire, um, you know, it's 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 so so sad and unfortunate that you know we've had to endure these devastating. Um, you know, impacts not only on people but on the landscape. Um, you know, up here in Gumbangi country, we we lost an awful amount of of our landscape and species. Um, you know, all our wildflowers are struggling to come back. Um, you know, it, it changes the landscape. And one of the issues is is the fear around fire. But, you know, one thing within that uh, traditional ecological knowledge um system is that as a young from a young age many aboriginal people are taught about fire and the different personalities of fire um you know i explain it to people that you know fire is like a person sometimes you know it can warm you it can be the thing that saves your life um you know it can comfort you it can you know you can stare into it and you can go anywhere you know in your mind you want to go you know you can use it as a tool uh, to assist you in, in what you're going to do. You know, it has all these different personalities. It can be fierce. It can be comforting. It can be soft. You know, it can be warming. It, it, it can be wild, you know. And, you know, that's, 
that's how we treat it. But, you know, other people will see fire having just one personality and that is dangerous and we have to fight it. Um, and so there's those different worldviews on, on seeing fire and, you know, the, the application, it, more so now people are starting to understand and realise, um, you know, cultural burning practices and, and fire stick farming a lot better um, because, you know, during those fires um, you've seen where Aboriginal people were practising traditional fire management that, um, you know, those areas came out fairly unscathed um, and that was really, really interesting. And so now, you know, things in that front are changing a little bit, um, but, you know, we've still got these implications of a Western law system and a traditional law system. So, you know, you're dealing with the complexities of legislation and permits and notifications Um and whereas for Aboriginal people, it's all about, okay, what, what's, what are the species doing? Um, you know, are the, the lizards are hibernating? Um, you know, what are the winds doing? Is it the right time? And when all those things line up, that's when you um, put a fire stick in, into country. Whereas on the other side, it's more about, you know, the checks and balances of ticking a box, um, making sure that your permit's done, notifying your neighbours, um, so these two worlds are still yet to find a happy medium, I feel. It was interesting. I mean, maybe it's the timing of our talk today is um, I think you might, you, did you hear about in the news, maybe you might have recalled that in um, Adelaide on Ghana country, they recently did a cultural burn, I think not far from the city. So having those practices become more and more visible, being reported on and, and will most importantly being organised to happen in urban environments too, because I mean that's something be interesting. You know, talking about not talking just about sort of remote rural areas, but also how do we care for country? Um, how can we manage country even if it's like urbanised? Um, you know, these, like the east coast, which is you know highly colonised and urbanised, um, and despite you know being built up over, you know, the co Aboriginal cultural values always exist in the landscape in the landform. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's yeah. a lot to think about. There is. And, and when I was talking about those new two worldviews in those systems, so, you know, you can see TEK and Aboriginal knowledge is like, it's, it's like this, um, it's, it's like a, a, a ready dex or a, you know, a filing system where, you know, the, the, the cultures have developed these various forms of uh, codifying knowledge. And so a lot of that is based upon our oral delivery and in and, and different uh, narrative forms, you know, and, and each has got its own category or its style or its complex pattern or its characteristics. And within that, then within the community or the language landscape, you know, there are then individuals or families that hold certain components of that knowledge and that story. And so, you know, you get it through. And, and this is what I talk when I talk about the systems. So then you've got like genealogies that are attached to it, the, the oral delivery, whether it's through, um, you know, chants and poems or stories in storylines, um, whether it's through dance, uh, whether it's through these uh, seasonal calendars, uh, whether it's through song or quotations um, or, you know, through um, objects in the landscape. So it's, it's, it's these... Um, these systems that, um, you know, you can't just pick little bits and pieces out of uh, traditional knowledge and, and use. It sort of comes as a whole system. And, and that's where, 
you know, some people find it hard to to understand, um, you know, TEK and its application, and especially in the realm of, of, of fire, I think, yeah. Oh, thank you. Well, we're nearing the end of the conversation part of today's um, event, but I, I just want to give you this opportunity to talk about the sort of final takeouts of, you know, how, something that the audience can take with them, have, have food for thought, is... Um, you know what? What does climate justice, Earth justice, mean to you? And what is something we can think about in how, what that means and what that involves? Yeah. Look, as I said earlier, you know, um, your Aboriginal people and our culture and our, our knowledge systems are very, very much embedded in in country, in landscapes, in species. Um, and, you know, that comes through kinship, it comes through totism, you know, it, it, it comes through animism. Um, and, you know, we essentially are a part of the landscape that we come from and belong to. So essentially, you know, the land or the sea is us as we are it. So that interconnection and that bind you know our, our our culture and our belief systems are based on the the biodiversity and the landscapes of this country and you know we're all in this boat together you know we're coming into these uncertain times in the anthropocene and um all the you know impacts and pressures that come come with that um you know we're in climate change um you know and we're in, you know, COVID and these, um, you know, uh, diseases that are happening. It's like, you know, we can't continue, you know, down this path of constant colonisation. There needs to be a point where we stop colonising and we start looking at some different systems, some different worldviews, some different laws um, that help us, you know, move through these transitions in these times. And, you know, if traditional ecological knowledge has, you know, been around for thousands of years, it's worked, you know, we had a period of where Aboriginal people coexisted with megafauna, you know, between 13 and, and 17,000 years. Um, you know, if that shared space can happen, you know, surely the shared space can happen in, in another time, which is now. And, you know, that's giving um, you know, and not having the fear of, of native title and allowing people to have land ownership, you know, is one of the first things. And then also to have that voice in governance of, of, of how our systems and how our, our, our government and our legislations proceed because, you know, We've we've had you know 236 years and you know there's been so many failures, um, but and I must admit there's been lots of really good wins and there's been lots of innovation come out of Australia. But you know, if we can use this as a another tool in this toolbox to help us become sustainable, to help us thrive as people, and to move forward into the future, and to have no fear and to be resilient and adaptable in climate change, well, you know, let's, let, let's give it a go. You know, it's, it's, it, it's time, I think. Yep. And that's a great, I think that's a great point to just thank Chelsea Marshall today. Thank you so much for your insight. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.